Well, we are returning to the book of Mark. That's where we've been the last several weeks, and that's again where we will be today. Um, so Mark chapter 2 is where we are, and while you guys are flipping open there, I want to start us off with a question. What is it that you need? What is your greatest need? Um, I know there's, we've talked about this a lot lately, there's just been people in our church uh, going through a lot of hard stuff, and so I, I just know in a lot of different people's situations, if they could just say, if I had just this one thing, if this one thing were different, um, I think life would be okay. I think things would be all right. And so that's a question I want, us, I want us to ask today, and I want that to be kind of permeating throughout the whole sermon, is, 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 what, is what is it that you need? What do you need? I um, mean, God's good providence, um, the scripture reading that we had today from Exodus 14, which is kind of the uh, lead up to the Exodus event, right? It's the crossing of the Red Sea, where God's people, uh, they are allowed to leave Egypt, but then as they leave Egypt, Pharaoh has a change of heart. And so he and the Egyptians, they chase after Israel, and Israel eventually get pushed up against the Red Sea. And so in that moment, uh, Israelites, they, they've been allowed to leave, but when they are stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptians, uh, they're hopeless. They have legs, but they might as well be lame, because it's not getting them out of that situation. And so as they can't go forward, they can't go back, their legs are useless, um, there's only one thing that can deliver them in this moment. And I want that also to be kind of ringing through our, our brains and our, and our minds as we come to this passage here in Mark chapter 2. And so, what is it that we need, and what is it that God is delivering us from? And so, um, the truth is, is our current circumstances, they almost always have a grasp on us, and they almost always dictate what it is that we believe that we need. Uh, this past week, uh, Levi, myself, and Dustin Ray, who's, uh, you know, he's been in our uh, congregation for a little bit. He's uh, considering, they're considering him to be the church planner for PCA Church in Springfield. All three of us this week went down to Tulsa for Presbytery, um, and, you know, poor planning on my part, whatever um, that is, but um, I didn't eat that day, and then Presbytery ran really, really long, so um, we wrap up business around nine o'clock at night, and uh, we're in Tulsa, and we all want to get home, but none of us have really eaten, and so on the way home from Tulsa, we decide we need some Burger King. We really need some Burger King right now. Um, I've been dieting the last few months, and Burger King at 10 o'clock at night is not typically one of the decisions I'm trying to make right now with my diet. So um, I do intermittent fasting, so Burger King in general, not a good idea. Burger King at 10 p.m. at night, a horrible idea, but that's the decision that we made, and uh, you got to live with it. Um, but again, my hunger, right? It had been, I think, about 30 hours since I had last eaten, and so in those circumstances, right, those circumstances dictate that it's Burger King, right? That's, that's what we're eating. And so uh, in that moment, that, that physical circumstance, um, that hunger allowing us to determine what our greatest need. In that moment, my greatest need was a Whopper with cheese. That was my greatest need. Um, and it wasn't about till 30 minutes after that, I really regretted it, right? I'm just like questioning everything I'm doing. I'm like, no, this was horrible. And you didn't have to get the large fry, you know, you didn't have to get the large soda. Um, anyways, that's a silly way of saying that our circumstances oftentimes dictate what it is that we believe our greatest need is, the thing that we need in that moment. And in our text today, we hear about a man who has a great need, um, and it's brought before Christ, it's brought before Jesus, and in it he finds out that what his great need is, is actually just a shadow, something that, uh, it's a signpost, something that's pointing him to his, his actual greatest need. 
And so uh, let us read now from Mark chapter 2. This is God's holy and inerrant word. And when he, Jesus that is, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, were the, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Let us pray. God, your word is good. Um, In it is so many stories that we are um, familiar with and that we love so deeply, Lord. And I just, I just pray as I uh, come to this text and um, preach this sermon, Lord, that um, you use this word well. Uh, God, my eloquence falls short. Um, my wisdom is, is limited, Lord. But it's not my word I stand on, Lord. This is your word. May we hear it today. May we hear our Father's voice. And in this word, Lord, may we come to hear your story, what you're doing in the life of your people, and how you deliver us from our greatest needs, our greatest struggles, the things that that cause us to fear, to have anxiety, that cause us to have sleepless nights, Lord, the things that have cost us joy in this life, Lord. You meet us in those moments, and you use those things, Lord, um, for our good. And so, Lord, I just pray for the preaching of your word, Lord, that we would know your goodness, your truth, your kindness, your mercy, your glory, Lord. Be with us now. I pray for us to hear your word and that we would cherish it, that we would store it in our hearts and that we would uh, have great joy over what you've done in the life of your people and what you will do in the life of your people even now. It's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Gospels. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. John doesn't talk about it, but it's in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those Synoptic Gospels. Um, And as one Christian pastor has remarked, he says, this story is a tiny version of the whole Gospel. Jesus preaching, Jesus healing, Jesus condemned, Jesus vindicated. And this paralyzed man's healing, it points forward to the new life that Jesus himself has in the resurrection. And there's lots of things we could spend talking about in this text, many a thing that we could um, get into. And there's lots of things that we won't get into because of that. Uh, but there's a two-point sermon. There's two, two points that I want us, I think this text clearly tells us, shows us what's going on. Um, two things. The need for forgiveness is the central theme of this text. There's so much going on, so many questions we could have, but it's just a screaming. We need forgiveness. 
people need to be forgiven. And we'll look at that and how that appears and how that shows itself. But So the need for forgiveness and secondly, the source of forgiveness. Where do we find forgiveness? And we already all know, right? We've all, where we live in the, the tale of God's redemptive history, we know it's Jesus, right? It's, it's obvious. But um, I think there's a lot here in this text and we'll be reminded of just how good Jesus really is, how good he is for us uh, and the forgiveness that he has for us and how it is good. So the need for forgiveness and the source for forgiveness. And, and here's the sermon in a sentence, right? If you're going to walk away with anything, this is it. This is, this is sermon in sentence, the dominant thought, big picture. Jesus cares about all of our needs, especially our greatest need, and he is doing something about it. So let's take a first look at, at that first point, the need for forgiveness. And so we are told right at the beginning of this that Jesus, he returned to Capernaum. Um, and this is this is a lot of times in the Bible, we're, we're kind of so distant from um, this level of details that the Bible gives us. But in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, when they give you like a location where something's taking place, oftentimes it's not just like how we tell stories, like I'm just going to give you every single detail. You know, it, but it, the details, they actually, they, they meant, they're meant to convey something, right? And so what Mark is saying when he tells us that, this is in, that Jesus is returning here is that Jesus' ministry, it starts here and it's going to, for a long time, his ministry is in Galilee. Capernaum is up north. It's in, the, it's in the region of Galilee. And this is important, especially when we get to the scribes. We're going to tell that the scribes were there. Now, these scribes, you guys, if you've been in church at any time, you know the scribes, the Pharisees. They are the, they're like the professional law people, right? They know the Bible. They know the Old Testament. And many of them are from Jerusalem. In fact, in Matthew and in Luke's account of the same story, it'll talk about how they came from everywhere, from Judea and, and, and from Jerusalem. And so we, we hear about Jesus and like the, all the reports going that his fame is growing, right? This house is so swarmed that people can't even enter it. It's like his name is so, so famous now that even the religious scholars of the day, the, even they, they care so much about what this Jesus guy has got going on that even they will come up from the temple down in Jerusalem, and even they are interested. So, so Jesus returned to Capernaum. And so Galilee, the region, it's also known as Galilee of the, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. And I just bring that up as another way of saying that um, the Jews weren't big fans of Gentiles. I think we all know that. And so for uh, these religious leaders to depart from Jerusalem and, and their safe haven of being around other Jews, it, they really wanted to go and be with this Jesus, to see what he was like and check them out. And so um, it, it, what Mark here tells us that Jesus was at home. And so um, there's good reason to believe that this isn't Jesus's personal home. There's a good reason to think that maybe he never had a personal home outside of living with his parents. Um, but, but especially in the context of Mark, if we were to go back and look at the last stories, Jesus is at Peter's mother-in-law's house, right? And he's been healing people there. Um, but if this is Jesus's home, I know there's been several people in our church dealing with, like, home issues, uh, like, just things breaking down, things not working. So, um, if this is Jesus' home, then here's another way in which Jesus identifies with his people, right? He knows the joys of home ownership. And so, uh, even though it says Jesus' home, it's more than likely that it's just talking about Capernaum. Capernaum is that city um, where it's, it's the home, it's the headquarters, this home base of his Galilean ministry, um, so it is more than likely, though, that Peter's the one who's calling the insurance company on this whole disaster. But, um, but this story 
is actually a result of what we read about last week, right? Last week, we heard the story of Jesus healing the leper. Um, in Mark 1, verses 44 and 45, it says that Jesus said to the healed leper, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer, your, uh, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, commandment, commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate place. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus, from that point, he just swarmed, right? Um, you can't, everyone's going to know where Jesus is. Like, he's the big news around town. He's like the Taylor Swift showing up at all the Kansas City Chiefs football games, right? It's like the big story. Everyone knows about it. Everyone gets to hear about it. And so uh, the scribes, um, they're even there. We talked about how they make their trip from down south. That They're there. They're present. And they, they have a, a keen interest in what Jesus has got going on. And so what is it that Jesus is doing, right? Just Jesus things, right? He's preaching, right? That's what he, one of the main things he came to do is he's preaching. And, and then the next detail that Mark shares with us is that he says a group of five guys is on their way, right? A, a paralytic being carried on his mat by, uh, by his four friends or four family members. And just as a point of a you know, background, in the ancient world, poor people, even middle-class people, it's not like we have, you know, we've got these big, fancy, you know, queen, king-size beds that we sleep on, or even if you're, you know, a kid, you've got a, you know, maybe a kid-size bed, a twin-size bed, something like that. People in the ancient world slept on mats. There's a decent chance that this mat that he's being carried in on, this paralytic, this is his whole world. Like, this is, this is his house, right? This is, like, everything he does, he does on this mat. And so, um, his friends, they bring him, they see this um, they recognize the, the, the man's great need, and so this is the time. If this guy who can heal people, he's healing everybody out there, we got to get our friend over to this Jesus guy. But there is a problem. Um, when they come, they come carrying their friend, and there actually is no way to get to him. And they get to the house. Um, again, the crowd surrounding so many people that they can't even enter the front door. And so what is the solution? We made it all this way. We've carried him this entire way. What do we do? Vandalism, right? That's what they do. They say, let's break and enter in this house. And so their solution is, is a sanctified vandalism is what we'll come to find out. Um, some of you are asking maybe like, okay, if you're trying to put this in your head and imagine what it's like. First century homes in Galilee, we actually have a fair amount of data about what it looks like. There's been many excavation efforts made uh, in Galilee, this area. So we kind of have a good idea of what these houses looked like. Um, if they were single home dwellings, um, never longer than 18 feet long. These are, these are small, right? These are small and they're almost always exclusively, you know, one story tall, maybe 10 feet tall houses. And so, um, but there, there were also some varieties. Oftentimes they might be kind of built in what we would consider maybe more like an apartment complex where they were kind of built to make a courtyard so that there was a common space in the center um, either way, so we don't know exactly what, if this was Peter's house, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we have an idea of just the structure of it. And, and for, for just how hot it can be um, in that world, in that part of the world, and there's no air conditioning, they, they would make staircases on the sides of the house so that you could go onto the top of the house. And the roof was oftentimes made out of stone, tile, um, oftentimes laid down with branches and mud on top of it. So it could be really firm. People could go up on there. It was not uncommon for people to spend their times up on the roofs of these places. But one thing is if it was made out of stone, if someone tries to break through it, you're going to know. This is maybe, like I said, a couple feet over your head, made out of stone. If someone starts coming through it, you're going to know. So keep in mind, while all this is happening, 
Jesus is actually preaching a sermon, right? He's preaching to people. And so these guys, they're banging on a stone roof, which presumably uh, just a couple feet above their heads. And so what do their efforts tell us? Like, if you're one of these guys, why are you putting up all this effort to be able to get to, to, get to Jesus? Well, the long and short of it is that these guys are desperate. They're desperate. And we see both this in both the paralytic's condition and the actions of the friends. I mean, like I said, we've talked about people in our church facing a lot of uh, health issues, right? A lot of maladies and um, injury. And so it's hard in our day, right? It's hard to be banged up in, in our day. But imagine in the ancient world, there's no medication, right? There's no wheelchairs. There's no crutches. Well, they probably make some kind of crutch-like thing, but like, it's tough. If it's tough now, which it is, it's really tough in the ancient world. This guy, again, he's probably he lived his whole life on this mat. He's probably still fed like a child. Um, people still have to clean up after him. And so you can only imagine, there's no more a life disparate than his. And so, and to kind of help us understand this too, so like, you know, we'll come to church and it's supposed to go pretty organized. We're Presbyterians, so everything's supposed to be decent and in order. But imagine if right now, boom, 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 right? Ceiling starts to fall in, right? Debris falls down, there's brick, there's stone. You're hearing these bang, bang, bangs. I mean, this would be a huge disruption, right? And it would be a building much smaller than this church. And so these guys coming in, like, if this is this, like, let's say it was four of you guys. I don't know who it is, right? You pick four of yourselves. Don't do this, but... Um, if you guys are breaking into this church during the middle of a sermon, I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with this picture, right? It's like, first off, we don't own this building, right? Bethany does. So you're, like, again, you're vandalizing, right? You're going to have to deal with the consequences that they, you know, that they're, they're probably pressing charges on you. Um, and then there's the people who are, like, sitting in the building, right? Like, you are running the risk of actually damaging people, hurting them. It's a serious injury that you could be employing on them. And then... There's the fact that someone's preaching, right? So it's rude to Bethany. It's rude to the congregants. It's rude to, if it was me, it would be rude to me, right? I'm trying to preach. I'm not trying to deal with this right now. Um, And I'm just Cody Chapman, intern at Christ the King, right? This is Jesus. This guy is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ who's preaching, right? They're interrupting this guy's sermon, and he only preaches bangers, right? He's, He's an amazing preacher, and they're interrupting this guy, and so Jesus, he sees their actions. He doesn't see them, though, as a great offense. What does he say in verse 5? We hear these words. We just, we, we're so familiar with Jesus. We're so familiar with the Gospels. We're so familiar with the story that these words that Jesus says, they do not shock you the way they should shock you. And Jesus says, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven. See, we know Jesus, right? So, like, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is capable of doing this. But if you're just, you know, your average Joseph in, in ancient Israel, your first century, um, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven? Back it up a little bit. He looks at their faith, right? He says the faith of his friends. And so, uh, Calvin, he's, got, he's good on this. He says the fruit of their faith, the friend's faith, appeared in their not being wearied out when they in, founded the entrance closed up on all sides, but it's also the faith of the paralytic. For Christ not only looked at those who brought the paralytic, but looked also at his faith. Sometimes um, there's some questions about, is it just the friends who have faith and this guy doesn't have faith? But no, it's inclusive. It's their faith, right? So the paralytic is part of that group. It's their faith. But sons, your sins are forgiven. We are not really told about a lot of the reactions from people, 
right? We kind of get the reaction from the scribes, and even then, it's not because they said anything about it. It's because Jesus perceived their thoughts. But we don't get a lot about the, the, the reactions of people here. Um, but again, this would be a shocking thing to hear. For everybody in the house, um, they knew what the, what the Scripture said. They've heard this time and time again. They know their Old Testament. Sin is taken care of. Sin is atoned for. Leviticus lays it out pretty clearly, very long-windedly, but very clearly. There's a system for the removal of sins, right? Sins were to be atoned for through various sacrifices and offerings in the temple by a Levitical priest. And the priests, um, they were mediators for such an exchange, and it had to be in the temple. But Jesus, is Jesus a priest? Well, yeah, we know he's a priest of a, of a different order, of the Melchizedek order, right? But is he a Levite? No, he's not. And is this taking place in the temple? Far from it. And so we don't even know if there's any repentance or inclination for, forgive, or for sorrow from this paralytic. We don't know if he's, he's not confessing to anything. He's just some guy who's, who's, who's you know, par- paralyzed. And so from the perspective of the scribes, they're the only ones we get the reaction from. And they've got red flags, alarms are sounding off. According to Mark, the conflict between Jesus and the scribes um, it began when Jesus claims to forgive sins. And this is just the first time, right? In the book of uh, Mark, we've already ran into some of the opposition that comes against Jesus, right? Satan and the, t- uh, the temptation in the wilderness and then the demonic forces that he will time and time again cast out. But this is the first time that the scribes show up, the scribes, the Pharisees. Um, and this will be an ongoing thing. This is really an introduction to the struggle that exists between them. And so we'll hear more of them in the book of Mark. And so, but their claim is that this was nothing less than blasphemy. And so we're going to return to their reaction in just a moment, but I want to ask the question again, or I want to ask this question, why does Jesus, instead of healing the man, forgive his sins? Well, and to, to get to the matter quickly, I guess, the root problem, our root problem, is sin. We've got, we've got countless problems in this world. But really, all of them, all of them fail in comparison to the fact that we are sinful and that we do sin. Now, does this mean that the paralyzed man was um, a sinner in some special sense and that his sin was the reason for his paralysis? We, we see in other stories of Scripture that, no, there's not necessarily uh, a sin that makes someone um, ill or, or paralyzed. Um, but Mark, he's not interested in that question. Right? He's not talking about that here. There's other New Testament verses that talk about illness uh, not directly linked to sin. Um, but what Mark is curious in what he's interested in is the point that Jesus has both the power to heal and to forgive. So the reason that Jesus forgives the man initially and does not heal him, um, that he forgives him initially and does not heal him initially, is because Jesus wants people to know that our real needs point to our greatest need. The paralytic has a real and serious need. His condition has left him isolated and in despair and in fear and anxiety, which is all of our plights if we are left without the forgiveness of sins. And and to jump ahead in the story a little bit, does Jesus not heal this guy, right? No, Jesus does heal him. And I think that's a powerful thing for us to hear. I think oftentimes um, this text can be handled in a way where, yes, of course, forgiveness of sins is our greatest need, of course. But Jesus cares about all your needs. He cares about all your needs. Jesus cares more about your needs than you can possibly understand. He cares to a magnitude and to a depth that we don't fully, we can't grasp. And so just to, you know, 
kind of shocking out some text to you guys. Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then we'll hear these words one day. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So how was it that Jesus replied to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven? And actually, um, that word son, there's, we just hear son and, you know, could just be you know, just a name for someone he didn't know that well. But in Matthew's account, he, he uses, he calls him son as well, but he also starts with the, the Greek. It's tharse technon, tharse technon. It means take heart, son, be encouraged, my child. Jesus is encouraging him saying, you have real problems. I'm not here to dismiss them. I care about them. And so Jesus, he cares about all of our needs. And in caring for this man's greatest need, he's caring for him so much that he'll say, your greatest need, your paralysis, what's keeping you down, it's actually an image of your actual greatest need, which is you need forgiveness. Your sin is the problem that needs to be rectified. And so in this man's paralysis, what we do see is the great need for forgiveness. But that brings us to our second point, the source of forgiveness. And again, as we've already made mention, we're so close to the story, we already know how Jesus' life ends. We know that he will go to the cross. We know that he will pay for sins. And because of this, we, we know that, yeah, it's Jesus, right? That Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. And so, um, but this brings us back to the reaction of the scribes. And so we're told that Jesus is the source of forgiveness, and we see this in a couple of ways in the book of Mark and, and in the story. Um, again, this new source of opposition, the, the scribes, they're men of theological acumen. They're not local synagogue officials of Capernaum. They, they're here on a fact-finding commission. They're trying to see what this Jesus guy teaches, what he's preaching about. Um, and the seeds of their hatred for Jesus are being planted in this story. And we'll see at the end of the gospel, it springs up in his crucifixion. And so, um, we are being told that Jesus is God. How is he the source of forgiveness? Is that he is God. And we hear this in several ways. Implicitly, um, we're told this in several ways. First, in Jesus' actions, right? The first action is that he actually has the ability to forgive this man's sins. He actually says those words, and he actually heals the man. So this, you know, we hear a lot of times that signs, they end up verifying the, the message of a preacher. And that's very much here, too. So Jesus is God. We first see in his action of healing the man and forgiving his sins. But we also see that Jesus has his divinity, right? And the fact that he's able to perceive their thoughts. Jesus is able to see the thoughts of men. They lay before him. They lay bare before him. We do have to give the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, some credit here, right? They do have accurate theology. They get the doctrine right. Only God can forgive sins. They're right about this. They take this right out of Isaiah 43, verse 25. It says, it's, this is the Lord saying, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so to Jesus' act of forgiveness, the scribe's reaction is, this guy, who does he think he is? 
Only God can do what he's saying he does. And Jesus' response is, yep. And if you knew who I was, you would know that this isn't a problem. The scribes, they have the right conviction. They just don't know who stands before them. And so Jesus, another way he displays his divinity is with his words. Um, like I said, that whole him, him being the one who can forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. And that statement, um, he actually ends up asking them a question about that, right? He says, um, what, which is easier to say, that your sins are forgiven or to rise, wake up, and pick up your mat and go home? Which one is harder right? which is, or which is easier? And in some sense, like, they're equally hard to say, right? He can say them. They're just saying sentences, right? Just saying words. Um, but I think what is being driven at here is that there's no way that some guy can come along and say your sins are forgiven and that be falsified. Like, he could just say that, and there's no, like, physical sign for that. And so the, I think the implication here is that it's way harder to some, tell a paralytic that he's healed because he actually has to get up and walk to demonstrate that he's no longer paralyzed. And so, um, so when, when Jesus eventually does tell this man to get up and walk, take his bed and go home, there's a lot on the line, right? If that man is not able to get up, then Jesus is not who he claims to be. But the man does get up. And so in the healing, we do see that that, this, that Jesus is God. But in addition to those words, Jesus' words in verse 10, um, this is one part of the book of Mark, and in the gospel is very interesting, is he calls himself the Son of Man. If you've been in church, you know that that's a, a designation that Jesus often gives himself. That's his favorite self-designation, the Son of Man. And in fact, it's very interesting, no one else, except for maybe one occurrence in the book of Acts, and there's some, some discussion on the translation there, but no one else in the, book, no one else in the New Testament refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. In fact, even in the early church, it's not a title that many people give to him either. But this is almost exclusively a title that Jesus has given to himself, the Son of Man. And so Mark uses it 14 times to discuss Jesus, to talk about Jesus, and Jesus refers to himself that many times. Um, he, Jesus says, I can forgive sins because I am the Son of Man. And so what does it mean? We don't have time to go there right now, but Daniel chapter 7, it's a, a vision that Daniel's having, and it's a vision... Um, of the, the last days, right? The, the judgment day. And so this son of man referred to there, um, God is on his throne and he calls someone to himself and it's the son of man who this heavenly figure, this heavenly figure that ap appears in the, the form of a man and he's set to become the judge of the whole world. God gives him all dominion and authority and power and he is the judge on the last day. And so Jesus is saying to the scribes, if you understood Daniel 7, you guys are the experts, right? If you guys really understood what was going on back there in Daniel chapter 7, you would know that I am the Son of Man, that the books are laid before me. I am the judge of the whole earth. Forgiving this man's sins, this one man's sin, is just the beginning of the work I'm going to do. It's the beginning of the judgment I have for this world. And so this Daniel, Danielic Son of Man, this heavenly messianic figure he's, uh, who brings the kingdom of God, to the afflicted saints on earth, this is Jesus. So Jesus is saying, I am he. And so Jesus, his actions are um, pointing to the fact that he is God um, and the source of forgiveness. He's also saying, I am the son of man, right? I am the fulfillment of what Daniel says, what his prophecy is. And then the last way we see that Jesus is the source of forgiveness is this amazing thing that's happening in the book of Mark. And it's already been taking place in the, in the, in the shadows. We haven't seen it. We haven't made a lot of it thus far in the series, but what Mark is doing, he's, Mark knows his Old Testament, right? 
And so divine providence, the, that fact that we talked about the Exodus this morning. The Exodus is a very, very important story in the life of Israel, right? It's, it's, it's a defining moment in their history. It was when the Lord brought glory to himself, redeemed Israel from bondage, vanquished their enemies, and he covenanted with his people. The Lord safely led them to the promised land. Not only were, there the, uh, were the Israelites to gain comfort from Yahweh's past dealing with them in the Exodus, they were also to look expectantly that he would one day um, in the future repeat the momentous event. So yes, the Exodus is this historical event, right? It's something that the, the people of God, they should look back on and say, this is how God deals with his people. But when we get to the prophets and specifically Isaiah, he's going to recast that, the Exodus event. And he's going to say, actually, that's just a prophecy. It, it happened, sure, but God's going to do it again. And this next time he does it, if we were to go through the whole book of Isaiah and see all the times, this, the, this day, this new Exodus event that Isaiah is prophesying, um, we could spend a lot of time doing that. But that's one of the key themes of Isaiah is the new Exodus, a, a new Exodus that is supposed to, to come. And what Mark is saying, that is Jesus. Jesus is the new Exodus. And he's come. And just as God has delivered people, his people in the past, he's delivering us now. And he will continue to deliver his people. So throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Isaiah, of Isaiah, the Exodus, it's an important feature, but it's something that points us forward. It points God's people forward. Just as God had shown up for his people um, and released them from the physical bondage of Egypt, the day is coming where a new Exodus will come. The second Exodus, um, the way that Isaiah depicts it is it's a consummate event, right? It's a final event. Um, the Lord will once for all deal with sin, forge a remnant, and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what this new exodus is going to be. And so Mark, he picks up on Isaiah's use. So we have, we have the exodus, we have Isaiah who uses the exodus to speak forward, and then we have Mark who takes that theme that Isaiah has, the new exodus, and he says, that is Jesus. That is Jesus. And so in Isaiah 35, the first six verses, um, I'm not going to go ahead and not read it just for time's sake, but Isaiah 35, those first six verses, he's talking so much about this, this new Exodus language. And just to read two of those verses, um, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This scene right here with the paralytic that Jesus is healing, he, Mark is he's making this plain as day. That new exodus where the blind will see, the deaf will hear, those who are mournful will sing joy, the lame will leap like a deer. Jesus is bringing this, this new exodus right here, right now. And when he tells the paralytic, rise, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, this is no mistake. This, this is the new exodus. Jesus is freeing his people from the bondage of their sin. The freeing of the bondage from their sin. And as Craig read to us that last line that we read from, the, from Exodus 14, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Right? Jesus is do doing the work. He is fighting for his people. He's fighting for the paralytic who can do nothing but lay down in a mat. 
And so without Jesus, the reality is we're all paralytics. Our sin leaves us without the ability to do anything. But we have a Lord who fights for us. And we need only be silent. Jesus knows and he cares about all of our needs, especially our greatest need. And he has and he is doing something about it. And so, just as a conclusion, just to round things out, these are just some, some things, quick conclusions. What does it mean for you? Like, what does it mean for you right here, right now? So, a couple things. Like, I think I got six things, but I'll, I'll try to be quick with them. One, the urgency, the desperation that these guys have. They want their friend to come to Jesus. Be that friend. Be that friend. Be the person who so desperately wants your friends to to encounter Christ. Bring your friends to Jesus. But also, you need to find friends that'll do that for you, right? Like this, you know, in church, it's, you know, these aren't your only friends that are here, but you should be looking for people who, their desperate plea is that you would know Christ. Find friends who will bring you to Jesus. Two. Uh, Do not go away thinking God only cares about your spiritual need. We talked about this earlier. Yes, our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Don't be mistaken about that. But again, God cares. All those things, all the the struggles that we face, those are ways, they're not punitive. God is not upset with you. If you are in Christ, he's not taking his wrath out on you in these silly ways of giving you difficulties in your life. These are things that God is putting in your life to draw you closer to himself. So do not go away thinking that these things do not matter, that your needs don't matter. They're ways in which God is showing your utter dependence on him. Three, Jesus sometimes does things that goes against our expectations, but he proves himself over and over. He has used the worst things to bring about the greatest things. I think we see that most well on the cross, right? Next, four, it isn't enough to get our theology right, right? Like, describes they, they got that part of the theology right but they don't know Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. So it's not enough to have our theology right. Five, did you catch this in the message? Forgiveness of sins does not come by good works, but comes by faith. It is in this moment right now, if you do not know Jesus, it is your faith that he sees and faith that, that has you saved. And lastly, um, last thing I'll point out is Mark chapter 2, verse 12. It ends and he says, it just is Mark telling us that the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. May we go out from this place amazed by what Christ has done for us. May we leave this place glorifying God for the good that he has done for us and forgiving our sins and caring for all of our needs. We have never seen anything like this. So may we worship him now. Let me pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, you are uh, an amazing God. You're a loving God. You care so deeply for us. You've proven yourself over and over. Your love for us, um, it has no end. There's no length to which you won't go for us. Uh, Lord, you may not have gone through a roof for us, Lord, but you've gone to the cross for us. And so, Lord, um, you are good and kind and majestic and wonderful and caring. Lord, we need you. Meet with us this day. Be with us. May we be amazed by you and glorify you to your son's great fame.
It's in your son's name that we pray and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.